0: Good morning, and Happy New Year. (laughs) A few of you are happy about the new year. Well, if you're considering a New Year's resolution, let me suggest thinking about our mission statement. So our our mission statement goes like this. GCF exists to glorify God through gospel-centered worship, evangelism, discipleship, and community. And this mission statement is really important to us because it really expresses um, our concern for these four important biblical values so let me talk about each one quickly so gospel-centered worship let me encourage you to consider making it a goal to come to church every sunday in the new year you can do this number two gospel-centered evangelism let me encourage you this next year to consider investing your life in the life of one person and praying for them and praying for yourself for boldness to tell them about Jesus. Number three, gospel-centered discipleship. Let me encourage you this fall to throw yourself into a GCF discipleship group. These are life-changing groups, and you won't regret it. And fourth and finally, number four, gospel-centered community. Um, Our community groups meet throughout North Spokane, Three times a month. And if you're not involved in one, let me encourage you, as a New Year's resolution, to get involved in a community group this next year and consider coming every week. We really believe the Bible teaches that we are saved into a community and we will not thrive as Christians unless we are actively involved with other Christians. So, both discipleship groups and community groups are a way to be involved in the lives of other Christians. But with that said, Uh, Let me pray once again as we consider God's word this morning. Uh, And as I pray, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 11. This morning we are back in the Gospel of John, and we get to learn about this wonderful story that so many of you know so well. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for another year to serve you this next year. Father, we pray that now as we seek to learn from you Uh, as the word of god is opened we pray that you uh, would open our eyes open our hearts open our minds lord we know this story well Uh, father i pray that you would help us this morning to believe what we believe help us to live like john 11 is true father we confess that we are often not that amazed by your grace but we pray this morning as we contemplate the life of Lazarus, that you would once again amaze us by your grace. And we pray all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Mike was a football star in high school and college. After college, he had a short stint playing football for NFL Europe. After his football career was over, he moved back to the States, went to chiropractic school, moved back to Spokane, and opened up a thriving and successful chiropractic practice in North Spokane. Mike was a Christian, and he had an agreement with pastors to provide them with free chiropractic care, which was fantastic for me. I went and saw him often. Uh, Mike was a wonderful man. He was gregarious. Um, Everyone loved Mike. Uh, His love for people was contagious. As a result, myself and so many others were shocked and surprised when Mike died a few months ago. Mike was in his mid to late 50s, in really, really good shape, lifted weights all the time. He cut his finger, he got infected, the infection spread, and in three days, he was dead. Died suddenly of a blood infection. Now, the story of Mike Uh, is a sobering and sad tale. And it reminds us that death is the great enemy. All of us will die someday like Mike. Some of us will die of old age. Others will die suddenly. Others will die young. Others will die rich. Others will die poor. Others will die of natural causes, some of unnatural causes. But the reality is, is that all of us someday will die. It's inevitable. Which makes us wonder, does death always win? Is there hope beyond the grave? And the answer is yes. And that brings us to this wonderful story, John chapter 11, and the story of Lazarus. This is a great story of hope. In the story, John reminds all of us that there is hope beyond the grave for all those who put their hope and confidence in Jesus Christ. Now, this story unfolds with four scenes, and each scene is marked by an action of Jesus. Four scenes. Jesus delays, Jesus promises, Jesus weeps, and Jesus speaks. And all four of these scenes point us to the incredible hope that we have as Christians. So, first scene is simply this, Jesus delays. Look with me at John 11, verses one to sixteen. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. <clears throat> it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, whom you love is ill. When Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. At this point, Jesus is not denying Lazarus will die, but he is denying that death will have the final word. Verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. Now the words of verse six are somewhat shocking. Wait a minute, Jesus. If you really love Martha and Mary and Lazarus, why are you delaying? Why not go right away to Lazarus' bedside, say a prayer, and prevent him From dying. Don't you care, Jesus, about Lazarus or about Martha or Mary? Notice that verse 5 says Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, in other words, in light of his love for them, so when he heard Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer. He intentionally chose to delay. He chose not to go and heal Lazarus. He chose to allow Mary and Martha to suffer for a few days. His delay almost seems heartless or unloving, doesn't it? He knows he could have healed Lazarus and prevented the sorrow, but he chooses not to. And again, it's motivated by his love for them, according to verse 5. God allows his children to experience trials, suffering, heartache, and pain for a greater good, which is why he often delays to respond to our prayers. He wanted them to witness a stupendous display of power that would change them forever. He wanted them to know that he has power over death. He wanted them to see his glory. He wanted to dramatically strengthen their faith, but he couldn't do these things unless Lazarus died first, which meant that they would suffer for at least two days and mourn the death of Lazarus. They couldn't see these things until they suffered. Verse 8, the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews... We're just now seeking to stone you, and you are going to go there again? Jesus answered, Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Verse 11 After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, If he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, here's the point so far. Christ hears that Lazarus is about to die, and he could have very easily gone right to his side, prayed for him, and healed him. Instead, he decides to delay for a much greater good. Now, I'm sure most of you remember the story of Joseph in the Old Testament, one of my favorite stories. Joseph was an incredible man of faith. Joseph is despised by his 11 brothers, and eventually they decide to betray him and sell him into slavery. When he's sold into slavery, I'm sure that he prayed, God, deliver me. But God delayed and did not deliver Joseph right away. Then Joseph ends up as a slave in Potiphar's household in Egypt, and Potiphar's wife was a wicked woman, and she falsely accuses Joseph Of sexual misconduct and I'm sure at that point Joseph prayed God deliver me from this evil woman and God delayed Joseph ends up in prison and he suffers there for a long time and I'm sure in prison Joseph prayed many times God please deliver me from this Egyptian prison cell where there's no cable TV no weight room no sanitation Just suffering and misery. Yet God delays. Eventually, as most of you know, God does deliver Joseph, and he becomes prime minister of all of Egypt. And in that position, he is able to rescue his entire family, i.e. the nation of Israel, from distinction. And God delayed and God delayed and God delayed because God had a greater plan the delivery of his people, Israel. But I'm sure in the midst of all those delays, Joseph was tempted to ask God, God, where in the world are you? Why am I suffering? And we can sometimes feel like Mary and Martha and Lazarus and Joseph. Wondering, God, don't you care? Why are you still delaying? Why am I still suffering? Why the chronic pain? Lord, why is my career failing miserably? Or Lord, why are you allowing me to be cheated, misrepresented, and persecuted? Don't you care, God? Or Lord, why are you allowing me to experience such crippling loneliness? Or, Lord, why are you allowing my children to wander? Or, Lord, why are you allowing me to be stuck in such a loveless marriage? Or, Lord, why did you allow my child to suffer and die? When God delays, we wonder, God, do you really care about me? God delays for two days in the story because... He loves Mary and Martha and Lazarus. God has a better plan. God is working that plan. And sometimes God allows us to suffer and experience heartache and pain because He has a better plan in store for us that will not come to pass unless we suffer first. And the Bible promises that if you're a Christian, God is somehow miraculously, supernaturally, powerfully working all things for your good and his glory, Romans eight twenty eight. That's a promise. And knowing that God has a greater good in mind allows you and I to persevere through intense heartache and pain. Now, fortunately, Jesus Christ does not delay forever, which brings us to the second scene. First, Jesus delays, but second, Jesus promises. Look with me at verse 17 and following. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. This reference to four days, repeated in verse 39, proves that Lazarus is really dead and not just sick. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Now, like most of the Jews of the day, Martha understood that right before final judgment, God would would raise all the saints from the grave. But she did not realize that Christ was about to raise her brother much sooner than that. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, saying in the Gospel of John, and arguably the most riveting so far. Jesus does not merely say that he will bring about the resurrection or cause the resurrection. He claims that he is the resurrection and the life, which means that not only will he someday raise every body from the grave He's also claiming to be the one who will make all things new. What are all things? All the things that have been affected by the stain of sin. Someday, when Christ returns, he will make all things new. He will resurrect all things. All of creation will experience the resurrecting power of King Jesus. Romans 8 clearly teaches us that. And when he says, I am the life, he's claiming to be the one who has come to bring fullness of life. Eternal life, resurrection life. And that life begins the moment you and I put our hope and confidence in Jesus Christ. We can experience that quality of life now in the present. A professor at Cambridge University was well known for boldly going into the center of Cambridge City and preaching the gospel to anyone who would listen. One afternoon, a heckler walked by and said to this professor, Professor, Prove to me that heaven is real. And the professor said, my dear fellow, I live there. And what he meant by that was simply this. Eternal life, the life of heaven, can be experienced now by all those who put their hope and confidence in King Jesus. Eternal life begins now when we believe the gospel But don't miss Christ's promise in all of this. He makes an amazing promise in verses 25 and 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? How do you and I experience resurrection life? Who has the hope of heaven? Is it those who work really, really hard at being good, righteous people? No. If that were the case, we would all be in deep trouble because none of us are good enough. Jesus clearly says that this promise of resurrection life, eternal life, is for all those who simply believe. That is the incredible scandal of Christianity. All we have to do is believe in God's promises, and he gives us eternal life. Now that belief is more than just accepting facts. That belief is a robust personal trust in Jesus Christ. We are trusting that he died on the cross for our sins. We are trusting that he has the power to remove all the guilt of sin. Simply by believing or trusting you and I can be recipients of Christ's amazing promise. Verse 26 says, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Christ is asking everyone this question. Which means he's asking you this question. Do you believe this? More importantly, do you and I live like this is true? Do we believe what we believe about the gospel, the power of the gospel, and the promise of resurrection life? If we really believe this, our lives would be dramatically different. With that said, Christ's promise is no guarantee of a pain-free life, which I'm sure many of us know very well. And this brings us to the next scene. First, Jesus delays. Second, Jesus promises. And third, Jesus weeps. Look at verse 28 and following. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Verse 33 raises an important question. What was it specifically that deeply moved and greatly troubled Jesus? Now, the Greek phrase deeply moved sometimes is translated as groaned, and it always suggests anger, Outrage or emotional indignation. In fact, one scholar says a better translation here was that Jesus was irate. But why? Why was Jesus irate? Why did he groan? Why was he angry? Because he hated death. Death is the greatest enemy of humanity. Death was not part of God's original plan. Humanity was meant to live forever, but because of sin, death entered into creation. Therefore, Jesus hates death because of what death does to his creation and what and how death makes all of us feel. One of our children, many years ago, battled cancer for about two years. As a result, we have spent lots of hours with other parents whose children have also battled cancer. I'll never ever forget being in the on the third floor of Sacred Heart Pediatric Oncology with one of my sons who was battling cancer. And there was a child in the room next to my son. This boy was 3 years old and he had multiple stages of cancer or multiple cancers in advanced stages. He had no hope of surviving. He was going to die, and everyone knew he was going to die. As a result of childhood cancer, many, many parents who have kids who have experienced cancer often say things like, I hate cancer, or blankety-blank-blank cancer. I'm sure you've seen the bumper stickers that say, blank-cancer. Now, why do these parents hate cancer so much? Because cancer causes all kinds of hardships, financial hardships. Fighting against cancer requires hours and hours and hours of going to the hospital, getting chemotherapy, hanging out with doctors in the cancer ward. And most significantly, cancer takes the lives of young children. So you can see why... So many adults that have kids that have had cancer say things like, I hate cancer. I think this is how Christ felt about death. He hated death because death caused so much heartache and pain, and death was not part of his original plan for creation. Verse 34. And he said... Where have you laid him? That is Lazarus. They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Again, why? Why did Jesus weep when he knew he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead? Had he given into despair? Did he not know what he was about to do? No, and no. He probably wept for two reasons. In Romans 12, 15, we read, Rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. Filled with compassion, Jesus Christ was obeying this command to weep with those who were weeping. Furthermore, he was fully human, and these were his friends. And he cared about them, their feelings, their experiences, and their pain. Jesus' tears here remind us that God is not a stoic, uncaring, unfeeling God. He sees all of our pain, all of our sorrow, all of our trials, all of our suffering, and when we weep, he weeps with us. He understands pain and sorrow and anguish, and he cares deeply about your feelings. He is both transcendent, the creator of all things, and imminent, intimately involved in our lives, understanding all of our heartache and pain. What tears have you cried recently? Jesus knows about those tears, and he cares. And he cries When we cry. And I wonder, is this how you and I think about God? The God who creates and the God who weeps. Now, fortunately, Jesus does not or does more than weep, he acts. Which brings us to the final climactic scene of this story. Jesus delays, Jesus promises, Jesus weeps, and forth. Jesus speaks. Look at verse 36 and following. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could he not, who opened the eyes of the blind man, also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there'll be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Again, John highlights the fact that Lazarus is not merely sick, he's actually dead. Not just partially dead, but fully dead. Verse 40 Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So he took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he would said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Now, Charles Spurgeon of the 19th century argues that Jesus had to specify he was calling Lazarus. Otherwise, every dead body in Palestine would have exploded forth from the grave. Why? Because we're talking about the God who spoke, and out of nothing, billions of galaxies leapt into existence. There is tremendous power in the voice of God. And in this moment, God merely speaks. He calls out to Lazarus. And Lazarus rises from the grave. And this is a graphic illustration of what will happen someday when Christ returns and speaks again. And everyone who's ever lived will rise from the grave at the sound of Christ's voice. Verse 44 The man who had died came out, his hands and feet. Bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth, Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let them go. Now, the moment that Christ called for Lazarus to come forth, his heart began to beat again. Nerve impulses began to race through his body. His brain waves ignited and his rotting, putrefying flesh. Was restored. Then I'm sure at this point, the crowd probably stepped back and looked into the grave to see what was going to happen. And I'm sure some saw this body in the grave sit up and then stand up and then begin to walk. And I'm sure that many screamed in terror as Lazarus emerged from the grave like a mummy. We've heard the story before. So it doesn't surprise us, but imagine being there and seeing this dead guy come back to life and walk in front of you. Christ spoke, and Lazarus' dead body emerged from the grave. This is the sixth and most spectacular sign so far in John's gospel. So far, we've seen Christ turn water into wine, he healed the official son. He healed the lame man, fed the 5,000, healed the blind man. And for the sixth sign, Jesus Christ raises Lazarus from the grave. And all these signs are designed to prove that Jesus Christ is the divine Messiah. And therefore, he is worthy of all of our hope, trust, and confidence. And he is powerful enough to save us from the power of sin, the power of death, and the guilt of sin. And by raising Lazarus from the dead, Jesus is laying the groundwork... For the seventh and final sign, which is his death and his resurrection from the grave. And the number seven is the number of perfection. And the seventh sign is the perfect sign that proves beyond reasonable doubt that Jesus Christ is, in fact, the, the divine Messiah because he has the power to raise his own body from the grave. What does all this mean for us this morning? Again, since Christ raised Lazarus from the grave, it proves that Christ is divine. And since he is divine, he must be loved and trusted and followed and obeyed. He's king of kings and Lord of lords. And again, if he is divine, then he has the power To save us from the guilt of sin, the corruption of sin, the flames of hell, and the power of the devil. These signs prove that he is who he says he is. Furthermore, the resurrection of Lazarus is a preview of our resurrection. Someday, all Christians will rise from the grave at the voice of King Jesus. This means that Christians do not have to fear death. And if you and I really lived like that was true, how would that change us? How would that affect us? We'd probably be a lot more bold and courageous in evangelism. This also means that no matter how hard life gets, if you're a Christian, the best is always yet to come. Someday your body will rise from the grave to a new glorified and resurrected state. Furthermore, this means that we will surely see God face to face someday. And when you and I see him face to face in our resurrection bodies, there'll be an everlasting explosion of joy in our hearts and souls. This also means that Christians will someday see their loved ones again. Someday I will see again Mike Valente, my chiropractor and friend who died suddenly three months ago. This means that there is hope beyond the grave. The resurrection of Lazarus, and then Christ, and then us, changes everything. I've been reading John Grisham's novel, The Testament. This novel is the story of a billionaire who dies and leaves everything to an estranged daughter. By everything, I mean $11 billion. The problem is, is that no one can find this estranged daughter. So half the book is is the main character trying to track down this daughter. It turns out that she's a Christian and she joined New Tribes Missions and she ended up in the Brazilian jungles ministering to a very, very obscure tribe of Brazilian natives. So they finally track her down after months and months of intense travel through jungles and across rivers and in rickety plains. And when she's told, you are about to inherit $11 billion dollars, She couldn't care less. She doesn't even want the money. And at that point, everyone who reads the book wonders, like, really? This is $11 billion. You could fund missions for years and years and years. And buy a mansion and a yacht and a couple of airplanes and fund missions. You could do all kinds of things with that money. But she doesn't want the money. It's totally irrelevant to her. And the question is, why? Why does she not care about inheriting $11 billion? Because she knows that just like Lazarus, someday she too will die and rise from the grave to eternal glory. She will live forever in a glorified resurrection body. And if that's true, all that matters in this life is preparing for the life to come. That's all that matters. It doesn't matter how much money you have, how many cars you own, how high you climb the corporate ladder. None of that matters because someday, like Lazarus, you will rise from the grave and live forever in the new creation with God the Father Almighty, King Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. So all that matters in this life is preparing for the life to come. Let me conclude by reminding us of the words of the great missionary C.T. Studd. He died in 1931, but before he died, he uttered these famous words. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. I'll say it again. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Because King Jesus rose from the grave, because Lazarus rose from the grave, you will rise from the grave. So all that matters is preparing for eternal life. Let's pray together.